the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, kids. Halloween is around the corner. I hope you're prepared. I don't know what I'm going as this year, but I have plenty of costume options. I have a question. I have a question for the kids, okay? Have you guys already started thinking about, have you, have you figured out the houses from last year that gave raisins? Not going there. Have you figured out the candy that you're really hoping for, hoping to get? Yeah? Okay, here's my question. If you could eat candy for every meal, for the rest of your life, would you do it? No? no. Yes? No. <laughs> My kid's the one saying yes. All right. That's fantastic. Here's the thing about eating candy for every meal. It sounds like a pretty good idea, right? Especially if it's Reese's peanut butter cups. That's right. But come on. You're going to get stomach aches. You're going to get toothaches. And after a while, if you were to eat candy for every single meal, you wouldn't even be able to run and play with your friends. You would become so tired and exhausted and sick, you wouldn't have any fun anymore. You may want candy all the time, but likely you want to feel not sick and you want to have energy to run and play with your friends more than you want candy, right? The truth is that we're all pulled through the world by our loves. We're being driven about through the world by desire. And what we love isn't always good for us. Even if it has some goodness to it, like candy, it needs to be in the right place, in the right order, right? This is what the doctors of the church are talking about when they say that sin is essentially disordered love. You've put things in the wrong place. I once heard an interview with a man who had a deadly allergy to shellfish, but he loved shellfish. And so a couple times a year, he'd grab an EpiPen and head to Red Lobster or wherever and basically just try to beat the clock on his throat closing up. No joke. <clears throat> I'm not allergic to shellfish, but I can relate. I do things all the time that are not good for me because I just love them, right? 
Our gospel text this evening contains words that are spoken in our liturgy nearly every week in the summary of the law. And it's one of those things that I think can become so familiar to us as to lose its punch. And it's one of those texts that can exacerbate the the evangelical proclivity toward nail-biting introspection, right? How could I possibly know when I have loved my neighbor as myself or really loved God with my entire heart, soul, and mind? So I'm going to warn you right now, we're not going to be able to get too far into this passage. There is a lot here uh, really framing the entire Christian life. But what I want to do this evening is, is try to kind of reframe the idea of commandments in the moral life in general to help us get a deeper understanding of what Jesus is doing here. And part of this is born out of my own experience, having lived my whole life as a member in good standing of the Church of Anxious Saints. I must confess that I still process these words of Jesus in exactly this, this same way. How do I know when I have done enough? And like any good anxiety disorder, it can stir us up into frenetic action for a time, right? Well, I'm just going to get out there and I'm going to do the best I can. But after a while, it numbs you to the whole situation. So even though you're still sort of looking over your shoulder, waiting for the other shoe to drop, you're, you're falling asleep to it all at the same time. And so before we go too much further, I, I just want to say this and remind us of a few things, that to love God is to fundamentally believe what he says. At the root of loving God is to fundamentally believe what he says about you. And if you've been baptized into Christ's church, then he has very good things to say about you. And this means that we have to relocate these commands of Jesus away from anxious inwardness and instead form an open receptiveness to God's spoken love to us. Okay? So I want to remind us that what God has spoken, the gospel message, is that God in Jesus Christ has drawn near as love. As love. He has sent out his invite and he himself has entered into his vineyard, right? The, the trysting place for God and his people. So we cannot afford to go into a discussion of how to keep this greatest commandment all the while picturing God as a distant, most likely angry father who is just waiting for an opportunity to slam us. And in fact, you, you can sort of see the genius of the church lectionary because they, they put two texts together that you couldn't possibly preach on both of them all at once because they're so jam-packed. But what it's showing us is that keeping these commandments is predicated on the second part, which is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's son. And the implication that Matthew is going to draw out later is that if you believe in him and you're baptized in his church, you're given the spirit, which will actually grow in you love for God and for neighbor. We're not going to love God if we think that he's just this angry guy up in the sky. So again, I say to you, when God looks at you, he sees the beloved. He sees someone that he is absolutely passionately in love with. And he wrote you a love poem, and here's some lines from it. I I read from this poem a couple weeks ago, but here's some more. This is what he says to you. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart. With one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. 
He goes on and on and on describing his love. With that love song echoing in our minds, I'd, I'd like us to consider this sort of set of finger paints that is theology, right? Over here we have moral theology. Over here we have the gospel. Finger paints look really nice and neat in their separate containers, but they're not made to be hermetically sealed off from one another. So I invite you to come along with me and get a little bit messy. Christian moral theology has specific things to say about human behavior. You could ask anybody on the streets of Portland, do Christians have some sort of like moral code that they're supposed to follow? Everybody would say yes. Do they like it? Maybe not, but at least they know it exists, right? The Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, the New Testament epistles, a variety of gospel passages in which Jesus lays out, frankly, some fairly steep terrain for his followers. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, previous to this text, he says very openly, if you don't keep the commandments, you're not in. Christian moral theology has very specific things to say about human behavior, and the entirety of the moral life, Jesus tells us here, is summed up in these two commandments, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. Which means, in the most basic way, moral theology has nothing whatsoever to do with banishing desire. Quite the opposite. It's all about increasing desire and love and pointing it in the right direction. So if somewhere in your, in your background in Christian formation, if you think that somehow following God and doing the right thing is about squishing down your desires, that, that's a wrong way of looking at it. It's actually about having your desires set aflame and then pointed in the right way toward God himself. So I want to make just a few observations about some of the language of our, our text here in the gospel before we turn just very briefly, briefly to thinking about how we can put these commands into practice. First of all, love. The very first word of this command is love. And love is, as those poet philosophers known as DC Talk so aptly put it, a verb. You need me to sing the song? <laughs> I won't do it. I can't do it. Later. <laughs> Jesus isn't telling us to have warm, fuzzy feelings toward God. That might be part of it. He's not telling us to have warm, fuzzy feelings toward our neighbor, though that also might be part of it. In fact, he tells us in John's Gospel that to love is to give up your life for your friends. Love is very much about embodied action. There are things to do in love. But I think even right away here, there's a sense in which a lot of us can feel close to being knocked out by a one-two punch. Because we've continued to think of moral theology as this sort of embarrassing, harassing, awful obligation. These, these sorts of things that, oh, we just, you know, well, I'm a Christian, so I have to do this or not do that. Well, at the same time, our culture's concept of love has been so reduced to niceness and tolerance. It's been neutered. It's, the, the teeth have been pulled out of it. And so when Jesus says to love, we're almost immediately at a loss. And so to the first point, I would say the moral life, a life of discipleship, is not some nasty obligation in much the same way that not eating candy for every meal isn't some horrible obligation, right? Eating a well-balanced diet brings you to a place of thriving and freedom. And it, it, it seems silly almost to have to say this out loud, but I, I, 
Our enemy, the devil, is so wily, I think this has to be said and probably said more often, is that Jesus did not come in the flesh and suffer death on the cross in order to pull off a bait and switch. (laughs) Ha ha, I told you it'd be good and easy to follow me, but ta-da, it's the worst, right? That's not what he's doing. No, in fact, the devil is the most miserable of all creatures, and the only thing that he can think to do with his misery is to convince you to not love God and to not love your neighbor and thereby enter misery with him in what is a self-centered existence. Satan says, oh, you poor thing, you must be starving. Go grab a hungry man out of the freezer and heat it up. And in our ignorant hunger, so often we'll do it. And yet the gospel message is, guys, God has rented out the entire Le Pigeon and there's an open bar. Come and feast. Love back toward God is is expressed in words and actions that flow out of desire, but it is rooted in faith that God isn't a liar. That when he says he loves you, he really loves you. When he says he wants you in friendship, he means it. When he says that following him is the way to freedom and flourishing, that's actually true. We simply will not love God in return if we don't trust that he loves us. But next, in the the way that Jesus phrases this, we're, we're not called to love some distant God who may or may not feel like taking us to the movies on Friday. We're called to love the Lord. And in in doing this, Jesus is linking us here to the God of Israel, to the the personal God who makes covenants with his people, you know, marital promises, right? All this language is all tied up together. The idea that God loves you and wants you for himself is tied up in the idea of marriage. And here is the God who makes covenantal promises with his people. And listen, I mean, listen to to the wording of it. Do you hear the gospel here? Love the Lord, the the personal creator God who has covenanted himself with you, your God. Love the Lord, your God. He's not just out there. He's already given himself to you in love. You're not going to love him into being yours. He's already given himself to you. To love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind means to love him with all of you with your stomach, with your guts. It's down in here. This is the first and great commandment, Jesus says. Meaning, you can't skip past this one and go right on to loving your neighbor. And I think this is one of the ways in which culturally we are going to stick out like sore thumbs. Because our culture has all sorts of ideas about how we should love our neighbors. Some of them may be good and true. Some of them may be destructive. The only way to find that out is if your love for neighbor is rooted in your love for God. Love for God must come first. But notice the religious men testing Jesus didn't ask for the two greatest commandments. They asked for one, which should signal to us that it's possible to convince ourselves that we're loving God when we're not actually loving our neighbor. And for Jesus, that can't exist. And so he will not allow the Pharisees to continue lying to themselves that they have fulfilled the law because there's a second commandment that flows out of and is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. 
Don't love those who are exactly like you. I mean, do, but not just those. Don't just love even the poor or the third world or citizens of Puerto Rico. Love the individual person who has been stuck in your way and all of those other things, okay? Christian communities for decades and centuries now have been sort of on one end of the playing field or the other in terms of being able to admit to social and societal evils and inequities. We have to absolutely expose those and do our best to undermine them. But we may not use them as an excuse to avoid the person who has been stuck right in our path. That's what it means to love your neighbor. It's the person who is just right, right there. And this neighbor love involves so much more than just warm feelings. And nor is it a toothless kindness. And I'd say at a basic level, for our neighbors outside the church, we are called to love them with a profligate generosity in a way that should just take their breath away. We should just offer and offer and offer love and generosity to them at every turn, all the while bearing witness to the kingdom of God drawn near in Christ. And much like last week, I don't have a list of specifics for you on this. This is something that has to be incarnated in us as a community in this particular time and place, what it looks like to love those outside the church with just abandonment and generosity, and yet still bearing witness to the kingdom of God. And to love our neighbors inside the church, we must continue to love and forgive with a radical selflessness and speak the truth in love. Okay? There's an irreducible difference here between those that are inside the church and those that are outside the church. And, and I don't like us and them language, but there's a reality to baptized people are being called to a thing that unbaptized people have not yet been called to. So Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge outsiders, right? Yet those inside the church, he does. And in fact, Jesus would have been very familiar that the passage in Leviticus that he's quoting about loving your neighbor as yourself follows right on the heels of what that love sometimes look like, looks like. In Leviticus, it says this, you shall rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Dot, dot, dot. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is not a go-along-to-get-along kind of love within the church. There, there is sometimes a kind of wrestling and a, a humility that is required for us to truly engage one another as neighbors. Just briefly, how are we to go about being people who love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and who learn as a community what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves in this place? I think first and foremost, we absolutely must be people who are indwelt by the Spirit. We must be people who are indwelt by the Spirit. One of the most magnetizing things about Jesus' earthly ministry is the way that he is able in every single moment to attend in love to his Father and thereby be present in love to whatever human person is in front of him. He's able to just, to just move fluidly from thing to thing in a way that is staggering. I mean, one of the, 
the gospel passages that really sticks in my mind with this is, is when he's um, healing Peter's mother-in-law. You guys remember this passage? He, go, he goes to Peter's house, and his mother-in-law is there, and she's been sick, and he heals her. And so when she gets healed, they decide to throw a little dinner party. And it says that she's just start, she starts making everybody's favorite food, and they're having this little party. But then the word gets out, right? And all the sick and the marginalized and the demon-possessed, they all come crowding into this party. And it's almost like you, you can sort of feel it, right? You're like, ah, oh, but I'm off work. Like, I just took off my uniform, and I'm just trying to relax with my friends. Doesn't miss a beat. He just goes right into healing and casting out demons, and then he goes right from there to silent solo prayer with his father. He is able in every moment to attend to his father in love, and in so doing, he loves the neighbor that has been put in front of him, whatever they need. He does this how? How is it that Jesus does this? I mean, of course he's God, right? That's what it means to be a Christian, is to believe that Jesus is God. And that's, of course, what he's getting at in the second half of our text, that David's son is David's Lord who sits at the right hand of God Almighty, which is, you know, it's code for saying this is deity-only bleacher section. To sit at the right hand of the Father means you're also God. But more than that, Jesus is also the Spirit-filled man. Jesus goes about his ministry doing what he does in the power of the Spirit. And in baptism, we are given the Spirit. We are brought into the death of Christ that we might live along with him, and now we are living his life. And so as the church has said for years, living the baptized life is an invitation to become what you are. Right? It's pressing into the reality that is already been being acted out of God toward you. God has so sought you out in love, not because of the good things that you've done, but simply out of his immense mercy, grace, and goodness. And now you have been given the spirit in your baptism to go out and attend to the Father in love as Christ did and love the person in front of you. Which, of course, means that spirit people have choices to make, Right? Being filled with the Spirit doesn't somehow free you from making decisions, from having moral agency, as philosophers call it. You have live options. You can decide to do things or not do them, right? As we've talked about since the very early days of our parish, our desires can be formed and they can be pointed in various directions. And our habits and our desires have this circular relationship. We make habits out of doing things we desire and we grow in our desire through habitual action, right? So they keep informing one another. If you want coffee every morning, you're going to have coffee. If you have coffee every morning, you're going to want coffee, right? The habit reinforces the desire and the desire reinforces the habit. And this is where liturgy, of course, comes in. The hidden genius of Jesus' answer here to the Pharisees is that it's actually rooted in the liturgical practice of Israel. One of the, 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 on the human side, one of the reasons that Jesus is able to just land this verse as he does in the midst of all of this questioning and conversation about his authority is because he has prayed it every single day of his life. Over and over and over in the liturgy of Israel, he is praying what is known as the great Shema. It's from, it's from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So just like drinking coffee, 
If you kneel and confess your sins, over time you're going to start craving absolution and living in the light rather than hiding away in guilt. The more that you kneel and confess, and instead of getting a lightning bolt, you hear words of love and grace and forgiveness, the more you're going to want to do it instead of hiding away in your guilt. The habit and the desire reinforce one another. If you open your hands to receive the peace of the Lord in the liturgy, you're going to start to use your hands to build peace towards your neighbors in the world. It's going to become reflexive. We talked about this a few months ago when we were talking about the early martyrs of the church and how historians have looked back at the physical actions of the martyrs as they're being torn apart by beasts is they're actually reenacting the passing of the peace in the liturgy. It becomes so inscribed in their bodies that as they're facing death, the one thing they reflexively do is start offering peace to one another. If you open your hands to receive the peace of the Lord, over time you are going to desire his peace and to make peace in the world. If you develop a taste for the rich, sweet wine that you drink in communion with one another and with God himself, you are going to grow in your desire for God and his kingdom. It's just a taste, right? Nobody gets the whole glass. It's growing in you a desire for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, in this great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. I hope that we can see that foundationally Jesus is inviting us to a place of true freedom and true flourishing. He's revealing to us that the mystery of life is that at the center of what it means to be human is to love and be loved. This this is wrapped up in, in human identity completely. And as we say so often here, God's greatest desire for all people is that we would live a life hidden with Christ in him. And it is only when we have been assumed into Christ that we can truly and freely love God and love others rather than using them as a tapestry for our self-expression. This is absolutely key to Christian love. Loving God with your whole self and loving your neighbor as yourself is not about you getting out of the doghouse. It's about you expressing the love that you've already been given. It's about responding with the only thing that makes sense. And it's about embracing the freedom that Christ has given you. And with that idea of freedom, I'll I'll close with a quote from Father Robert Capon. He says, all the while there was one thing we most needed, even from the start, and certainly will need here on out into the new Jerusalem. The ability to take our freedom seriously and act on it. To not live in fear of mistakes, but in the knowledge that no mistake can hold a candle to the love that draws us home. My repentance, he says, accordingly is not so much for my failings, but for the two-bit attitude toward them by which I made them more sovereign than grace. Grace, the imperative to hear the music and not just listen for errors, makes all infirmities occasions of glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.